and welcome to the BizDesign Enterprise Architecture Podcast. My name is Will Scott, and in these podcasts, we talk to thought leaders in the area of enterprise architecture and how they and their teams drive and deliver value to the organization in the areas of strategy advancement, operational efficiencies, and reduction in management of risk. Today, we speak to Ian Anderson at Elucian. As you will hear, Ian has deep experience in enterprise architecture in the higher education space. Now, Ian begins by drawing the parallels between higher education and enterprises, noting that both are businesses, and in that respect, very similar to how they operate. The only difference being that higher education talks about faculty, students, and courses, whereas enterprises talk about staff, customers, and products. So let's go to that interview now. So, Ian, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm thrilled to have you here. And I know you've got a lot of interesting things to talk about as it relates to enterprise architecture in the higher education space. But I think it'd be good for your listeners if you perhaps just first introduce yourself, uh, maybe your career path and um, who you work for now, who you work for now and, and what you do for them. Hi, Will. Uh, thanks for inviting me onto the podcast today. really appreciate it. So, yeah, my name's Ian Anderson, and uh, I've spent about 32 years working in the, the higher education sector. Um, I actually started off working in finance, uh, took a, a later life a degree, and, and then moved into IT. Uh, my wife always says, if you've worked in both finance and IT, by default, you are the most boring person in the room. But, hey, that's for other people to decide. So for the most part, um, when I work in IT, it's actually been much more of the, the business layer end of things rather than the technology. Um, so for, a, for quite a period of time, I headed up a, a business analysis function. Uh, my uh, professional qualification there is Six Sigma Master Black Belt. Um, but about 10 years ago, uh, there was an initiative in the UK um, led by the government to, to look at whether enterprise architecture could work as a function within universities. And I got involved in that. Um, at the end of that process, there, were, there was a few of us that were involved that, that thought there was still going to be real value in this and we wanted to take it further. Uh, so we approached Usiza, who um, are a, a membership body within the UK HE sector over IT. Uh, they would be similar to Educores in the US and Cordit in Australia. And we asked if we could found a, a community of practice under that uh, for enterprise architecture. So I, I was in from the start with that and then and then chaired that group for about four to five years. Uh, the biggest thing that we probably achieved in that time um, was the, the development of a, a UK HE capability model. Uh, we'd seen work that had been done elsewhere, um, both in the Netherlands with the Hora model um, and in, in Australia, uh, the Cordic group had developed their model. And we wanted to see if we could do something in the UK um, to do that because as I'll perhaps talk about later, I really see capability models as being a way to, to help drive enterprise architecture within an organization. Uh, following that uh, and the spread of the model, um, I then uh, took a, a leap, uh, as the HE sector would say, probably to the dark side and went to work in the corporate sector for Aleutian. Uh, Aleutian are a, a global company based out of um, the US uh, and supplying uh, student information systems uh, globally, uh, as well as, as HR and finance systems purely in the HE sector. So, so that's me in a nutshell. That's great. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about how you've seen uh, enterprise architecture evolve and its usage within higher education. But before we do that, I just wanted to ask your observation or views on this. 
Um, and I'm thinking back to a, a webinar I did with Kurt Keller from University of Missouri uh, some time ago. You know, oftentimes people might tune out and say, well, I'm not a higher education institution. And so this is not relevant to me. I work for an enterprise. Um, but I know you have a view that, that uh, that's not necessarily the case, although they're different sectors. There's actually a lot of similarities. Could you share that a little bit more? Uh, well, you know, that's always an interesting one. You know, I think there are still plenty of people within the sector who, when you refer to it as a business, see that really as a dirty expression. Um, I think there are, you know, I don't know the figures, but I suspect there's probably something like 150 uh, UK universities. And, uh, you know, there's a good percentage of those are going to be uh, doing a turnover of, what, 100 million, 200 million uh, per annum. And uh, if you look globally, you know, there are universities that are much bigger than that, you know, and, and that just by definition makes them big business. Um, I think what's interesting is that we sometimes forget that, you know, these are uh, consumers, students who we offer a service to, you know, teaching and learning mostly, and we ask them to pay for it. And when you do that, when you do that in, in any other consumer driven sector, um, there becomes a level of expectation around experience and satisfaction and outcome. And, and that should be no different in terms of uh, universities. And I think more and more um, the consumers are starting to recognise that. We're starting to see the real um, importance and value put on things like student satisfaction surveys by prospective students who are looking to pick which university that they're, they're going to go to in the future. Uh, you know, we've got to remember these are these are individuals who have grown up making their purchases based on what uh, the reviews are like on TripAdvisor and, and within Amazon and the such like. I think the other thing to, to make the point I'd like to make here is that obviously that you know there's been a need um, due to the, the COVID pandemic that universities had to move teaching and learning online. You know, there's been a lot of talk about doing that for a long time. Of course, the nat next natural progression of that is that it's not just for your own students, but you start offering those courses globally in a global marketplace. Of course, the, the great thing for that is that you then open yourself up to this uh, huge uh, customer base. But of course, the downside of that is as well that you um, are then up against every other vendor that's offering the same sort of thing that you are. This means that universities have to adapt and be much more agile in the, in the way that they develop their customer experience and their product base. And that's something that universities, I don't think, historically have been, been good at, but that's something they're going to need to learn. And I think the final point I want to make on this is really around the way that universities have been managed. I think historically universities have been, uh, the senior management positions have been driven by, by those that have come up through the academic side of the business. So I think whether it's consciously or subconsciously, there's been a recognition that actually if universities are going to be run much more like businesses, and they have to be, and we're seeing an influx of senior managers who have got no HE experience, but have, have come from the corporate world and been successful in that environment um, and are bringing the skill sets with them uh, to change the outlook of universities. But the, the real thing is, yes, from my perspective, universities are absolutely businesses. I like that. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the UK and I went to university in the UK, but I now have lived in the States for the better part of two decades. And I agree with you 150 percent. The higher education business is a big business. 
I'm here in Austin, Texas, and we've got University of Texas down the road, something like 60,000 students or something like that. Um, yeah, make no mistake, I agree with you completely. It's it's big business. And also, it seems that oftentimes this sort of dissociation between higher education and business can be made because we use different nouns. We don't talk about customers. We talk about students. We don't talk about staff. We talk about faculty. But, you know, the nouns might change the intent. You know, the intent stays the same. Let me let me ask a little bit more now, because you said you've been in higher education now for the majority of your career. How have you seen uh, uh, higher education's attitudes towards information technology and specifically the use of uh, enterprise architecture um, evolve over, you know, the, the past uh, past 10 years, let's say? Okay, well, I think you raise a good, a good point to start with, uh, Will, about the, 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 the nouns and how um, universities um, are like big business and we should relate to that. And I'd like to come back to that point. But in terms of how I've seen EA change, um, it's a, this is a difficult one. I, I still see globally, and, and I do work globally um, in EA. You know, I've been lucky enough to to um, undertake EA services in, in the likes of Australia and the Middle East and across Europe uh, and, and, and in North America. I still often see it as a cottage industry uh, within uh, universities. So there are, there are one or two pockets of excellence. There are some universities that are doing it very well. There are elements that are people within universities that are doing very well. But I have to say quite often it sits within IT. And my view of that is that if you place enterprise architecture within IT, it often defaults to technical architecture. So I, I think if you, you look at, you know, the, what would be the value proposition that um, HE has looked at uh, in terms of enterprise architecture over the last 10 years. I think it's changed. So I think originally it would have started around change because that's where EA quite often is the starting point and, and particularly in, in that IT space. Uh, and then I think it's driven by regulation. Uh, so the, the higher education sector has a huge amount of regulation that it has to deal with uh, from government reporting to dealing with the things that we all have to deal with you know in our region it's gdpr around data and the such like i think as i as i said in my in my uh, earlier piece that um as we've seen more corporate um big business leaders come into the higher education sector they the the alignment to strategic needs uh, has grown so i think that's become more important but I honestly think that, that where it will really take off uh, and should do um, is really in relation to the, the type of operating environment that we're in now. Um, you know, in this uh, the middle of this COVID time is around optimization, because I, I just think that uh, there isn't going to be the same amount of resources around, and it will be time for universities to start maximising the things that they do. That's interesting you should say that. And again, we're using the words higher education to describe the sector, but the story you tell of the struggles EA teams have had to gain relevance at the strategy level and being stuck down in the bowels of IT and seen as the guys who produce the complex diagrams, this is no different in the enterprise. The EA teams suffer from exactly the same same issue. But I did want to ask you, um, and I'm, I'm struck by something, again, Kurt Keller at University of Missouri said, and I wanted to talk to you about it. His observation was... The higher education in industry, I'll call it industry because it is that, has been undergoing this digitization 
um, uh, over the past decade. And certainly University of Phoenix and other places like that have demonstrated that this can work in the sort of remote online world. He also made the observation that the pandemic, um, and we're going to date this podcast here, but it's all on our minds right now. Has, his observation was, it's accelerated that which was going to happen anyway. Um, and so it, with that, more pressure has been put on the AEA teams to deliver because no longer is IT a, you know, a, 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 a you know, a, what should I say, a, a second order player. Now the ability to operate digitally is a first order issue for any higher education. Can you share your views on that? So, yeah, I, I mean, this point uh, is something that I wrote about right from uh, day one almost uh, of when we went into lockdown in the UK because um, this is what uh, EA teams were created for. It's about managing change and agility really quickly. Um, you know, if uh, if you're a senior manager that employs an EA uh, and you weren't knocking that door down or you were an EA and your door wasn't being um, uh, knocked on at the time, then then I think that there's a misunderstanding of what the role of EA is within your organization. Um, I think that, you know, I, it, EA is about having that complete holistic understanding of what your organization does at the highest level. You know, I often talk about that there is an element of the, the butterfly effect here. You know, if I tweak a process uh, right down in the, in the bowels of the operations of the university, then I should understand what that's going to affect and how the, that will affect the business strategically. And in the same way, if I tweak an application or some functionality, how that's going to affect the technology or the processes and, and, and such like. I want to tell a very brief story. Well, when I really started to understand EA was I was involved in moving um, an IT department from one building to another. And um, what really impressed me was when the estate people walked through the door, they could lay out on the conference table. They could show us the layout of what the offices would be like. They could show us where all the electricity points were, where all the, the water taps faucets were going to be. They could talk us about the building regulations and if we could move this desk and how many people we could have in each space. And they understand what the consequences of making changes were. And it absolutely struck me. The IT is no different to that. We should be able to do that in IT. We should be at anything that we change within the organization. And I, and, and I made a mistake there myself. I've used the term IT. But anything we change in the organization, we should be able to understand what the impact, that, what the impact of that is going to be. I think that's interesting. And uh, I think it's, 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 it's called architecture. For very good reasons. It is architecture. It just happens to be not bricks and mortar and wires and plumbing. In the same respect, we'd want to understand the consequence of moving a wall in a house. We'd also want to say the consequence. And it always struck me that EA's responsibility is not to worry about the instances of things. Like, I don't worry about the instances of my virtual servers. I don't worry about the instances of particular business processes, like those groups that deal with that. What EA is sort of the, the system of record for, I don't know whether that's the right word to use, is the relationships, is understanding that interconnectedness. You know, it's like this big ball of of wire and thread and coat hangers. And I wonder if I tug here, what, what happens on the other end? You know, it's interesting. We had a we had a podcast the other day and uh, we had some customers reach out to us and say, we've got the mandate from the CEO in the face of COVID, get rid of all contractors by Friday. That was the mandate. And their job was, well, what does that, what happens if we do that? Like, how are they stitched up through the organization? You know, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's something that EA is built for, as you say. 
Let, let me give you another example, Will. I, I was once involved in an organization that had a, a major uh, IT output of its whole infrastructure. And uh, they did the thing that uh, you very rarely do, but you went to your disaster recovery plan. And, and what the disaster recovery plan told us was that if we had a major output at this time of year, the biggest thing that we would affect is overseas student recruitment. And that's a big, important event for universities. What the IT department did was that they absolutely focused on bringing back that application that delivered that. The director of IT contacted the international department and said, look, we've done this and brought it back. And within an hour, there was a phone call saying, you know what, this isn't working. And when we looked at it, the, what we brought back was the application that delivered uh, that delivered the uh, the main part of the, the service, but it was actually all the other bits that made it work. So there was a, an agent, a, a recruitment agent portal that was required. There was a payment facility because no student could be recruited without making a deposit payment. There was these files and contracts that were still on people's hard drives or on local networks that we needed to access. So we brought the application back. What we didn't understand was the service. We hadn't walked the walk in terms of that. We hadn't understood what the, the value stream and the customer journey was through that. Uh, and I think for me, that again, that was something that always struck me as something that, you know, we never wanted to be in that position again. So that's interesting. And I wanted to talk to you as well. I know one of the things you spent uh, a lot of time on is developing this uh, business capability map for the higher education space. And my colleague, Joe Geary, um, came from a completely different sector power distribution sector often talks about business capability maps as being the Rosetta stone between enterprise architects and um, the execs. The exec should not be bothered with and should not need to learn Archimate or whatever the language is. The good enterprise architects suppress all that complexity that happens to my code I use, but ultimately manifests itself in the business capability map because it uses terms the business could understand. So can you talk a little bit more about your work on that and and how you source that, what it looks like, how it's used by the EA teams in higher ed? Yeah, so uh, when I was was chair of the USIZER community of practice for EA, um, the one thing that we kept going was the point I made earlier was that IT, uh, sorry, that EA always struggled to get out of IT. Um, and what we needed was something that um, could relate that back to um, to senior management. Uh, and when I, I looked into that, what was clear was that capability models seemed to be that sort of that, that center of the wheel, if you like, you know, that everything else hung off. If you could get that right, what there was an understanding was that senior management managers understood that when you talked about strategic delivery and strategic requirements and value streams, that they understood that there was going to be a need for business capabilities to achieve all those things. At the operational level, what they understood was that the, the things that they were delivering would deliver um, ultimately business capabilities. So it, it became the common ground to talk through. So I simply asked uh, the community practice, you know, should we create one of these? And um, the, the feedback was yes. And we had a um, a team we put a team together from five different universities we also got a, a data expert in to, to come and work alongside us on that. And, that and that's what we did over a year was to create this this common language if you like and, and, and that was as much as anything create this common language um for for organizations to use and uh, i think now you know i've i've, I've stepped away from you and um i, I i've now 
moved into to the, the corporate side and I, I've been able to look at back at the market a little bit more and and you know people are quite often ask me would we have built the model differently and in some ways yes we would have done um when i look at other standards around um from different sectors and, I, and, and the one i spent quite a lot looking time looking at is the buy-in standards that are used in uh, um uh, the banking industry, you know, and I, and I always say, you know, there there is a reason why I can take my cash card and turn up in Venezuela or any other part of the world and I can use my cash card and get money out is because the banking industry uses the same reference architecture. Now, HE is going to become much more global uh, as, as, you know, as every industry is. So I think it's it's time that the, we started considering that there is a, a common uh, reference architecture for the HE sector. I, I think there's a mass market for that. Um, but I think that in, in addition to that, I, I look at things like enabling capabilities like uh, the HR function and the finance function and the estates function and the marketing function, what I would like to see is potentially somebody like the Open Group taking those and, uh, and making capability model standards for those because actually they're the same in, in every industry. So it doesn't matter whether I work for a university or I work for a bank or I work for a car manufacturer, I'm going to have a finance function that has uh, accounts receivable and accounts payable and uh, debt management and potentially procurement. So we could have standard models there and they would be fantastic really to give in every, those who want to get into an EA uh, a leg up, I think. Out of interest, if I was to superimpose um, your model on top of Bian, like what what level of duplication would I see? Is there like a 80% overlap, a 50% overlap? What's the those common functions? What, what would you say the percentage overlap is? <laughs> so, so I've done that, uh, and, and I was actually led into this. I, um, by there was a university in North America actually started doing this, and it, it was then that got me into to having a look at this. Uh, and when I first looked at it, I thought this this is madness. You know, we're trying to compare apples and pears here. But when you look at it, you, you start talking about well, a, a bank offers these products, you know, mortgages and uh, bank accounts and loans. Well, universities they offer products, you know, undergraduate courses, postgraduate courses, research. Banks have customers. Well, universities have customers; they just call them students, you know. So actually, if you can look past the uh, semantics of it, actually these industries are are very very similar, uh, and actually. If you take an even wider look at that, actually, you can you can overlay that onto many industries. Um, so I, I think that there is a, a huge amount of crossover uh, and duplication in, in a lot of these models. And I, and I think that there's real space um, for, for some of these things to be aligned. So, Ian, perhaps a, a closing question here. It seems that the higher education industry has been changing you know, rapidly over the past decade, and certainly the pandemic has accelerated those change. Can you talk to us more about how that industry has changed, how the nature of universities have changed, and also any gaps that might have exposed between what technology does for those universities and consequently the demands that are going to be placed on enterprise architecture teams? Okay, so I think there's probably two aspects to that, Will. I, I think firstly, um, you know, if I look back at my time in higher education, when I first came into it, um, the vast majority of universities set aside the, the Ivy League and the Red Bricks, so most of them were, were teaching 
um, mostly undergraduate courses, a bit of postgraduate and a tiny bit of research on a, on a single campus site. That's no longer the case. You know, universities now, as we've said, are big businesses. They, they are multi-campus. They teach FE uh, as well as, uh, as all the other elements of teaching. Um, and they, they have an online presence. But I think what's happened is that and as universities have grown, it's been much more organic and structured, which has left them with a legacy of, of um, technical and, and business debt. And I think that's the role that really uh, EA should be helping universities with. I think the other thing to say around that is that, you know, we've moved as there's been a saying, certainly in the UK, that in terms of teaching and learning, you know, it hadn't changed for 400 years. Uh, well, it had to change overnight when we when, when COVID hit and uh, everything went online. Um, but that was in a way that was a bit of a sticking plaster. We need to, to look at that and, and how that's going to be developed out long term. But it. There are elements here where um, we won't go back to the old ways. I think more and more uh, universities are understanding, um, you know, not just in the teaching and learning, but probably even more so in the admin functions that support it. These processes will need to be much more standardized and simplified. And if we become, a, if this becomes into a, dig, a real digital environment, you know, we've only got to look at other sectors. You know, um, a decade ago, if I wanted to buy a, a jumper, then I went to two or three shops. Now I, I log online and I can be buying that jumper from anywhere around the world. The same could happen with higher, you know, with higher education. If I want to do a course, um, and for the most part, we need to remember this is the way that higher education will probably change, is because the skill sets that we now learn at university uh, only have a certain shelf life. You know, it's not like my dad did engineering and it lasted him his whole career. And now you will you'll get a base knowledge, but there is a need to update that as you go along. And that's how I do my learning. So what I do is I go online and I, I use an online I use online providers normally to be able to do that. Now once you're into that environment, um, it, that means I can go anywhere in the world for that. So I'm looking, you know, at what's the user experience. Um, and how easy is it to get involved with that university? And what's the product that's being offered? You know, the, the world becomes my oyster as a consumer. Um, and higher education probably hasn't had to deal with that, but I think it's going to need to. Uh, and that's going to require masses of change. And change, I think, is always benefited by the role of enterprise architecture. That's great, Ian. Uh, I'd like to thank you for your time. And what I've got to say, it's always fascinating to listen about a whole new industry sector. I'm sure for many of our listeners, like myself, we have a superficial understanding of higher education, perhaps recalling back to our own university days. And we imagine we know what it is. And we might also conclude it looks nothing like enterprise. But I think what you've shown us today is you, you peel back the cover and shine the light, not even shine the light that brightly. We see so many more commonalities than we see differences between higher education and commercial enterprise. It is a business. It faces the same problems. And once we can get past those those nouns changing, as we say, you know, it's not it's not it's not a customers, it's students and so on and so forth. There's perhaps a lot to be learned there. So, Ian, once again, thank you for your time today. And uh, I hope you keep well. Thank you. Thanks, Will. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. And as you'll have heard, the nouns may change. But enterprise architecture and higher education, the challenges, the techniques and the outcomes look almost identical to the enterprise. For more podcasts, blogs and recorded webinars, please visit us at businessign.com where there is a wealth of information available. 
And if you'd like to tell your EA story and feature on this podcast, then please email me, Will Scott, at podcast at bizdesign.com. BizDesign is a leader in the area of enterprise architecture software and supports enterprise architecture teams in delivering value to their organizations with a key focus on the value outcomes of strategy advancement, operational efficiency, and reducing risk. Thanks for your time today.